Daniel chapter five. So this chapter, if you know the book of Daniel, it's the chapter that made certain kinds of people say Daniel was a fake. That it wasn't written about a real guy who lived in Babylon in 605 BC to 535 BC. Not real. And the reason why they said that is because Belshazzar didn't exist in any kind of records we have from Babylon. But the people that say those things, they often don't believe in anything bigger than what can fit in their brain, which makes for a very small worldview, makes for a very tiny way of seeing the world. And so then what they're able to say is the prophecies that Daniel has about Babylon's fall and the rise of the Medo-Persians and the coming of the Greeks and the, the, the Romans, he was writing it looking in reverse as history, not as prophecy. So they're able to say all that until there was this discovery and they were called the Nabonidus cylinders. Has anybody heard of those? Okay, so I have a picture of one of them. Maybe you can see that. I'm sure you can read that, fine, right? Go ahead, read it. <laughs> I was looking at that today and I was thinking, um, with emojis now. Do you know there's like 2,823 different emojis? It's insane. So humans have gone full circle. We started with pictographs, hieroglyphics, and now we're back to hieroglyphics, right? We're now writing in emojis. All right, so it's this, this, there's a series of them, but these cylinders, the Nabonidus cylinders, they transformed what was believed about Babylon. Because in these cylinders, King Nabonidus, who everybody knew about, he writes, hey, I turned my kingdom over to my son, Belshazzar. And he was co-regent with me for 10 years exactly like Daniel chapter five. It's a grand slam for the Bible. I'm so glad we didn't throw away our Bibles because of that, right? So it's totally brilliant. So here's what we have, you can, yeah. So here's what has happened. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 BC. He turns over his empire um, to a descendant there's about four of them that come in pretty rapid succession. One of them, his name is Evil Meredith. That might ring a bell. He appears in the Bible in Jeremiah 52. He actually pulls Jehoiachin, who was the king that was deposed, brings him out of prison, sets him at his table and says, hey, you can have dinner with me every night from now on. So just this act of mercy and grace. It's really God to a very, very evil king still showing incredible grace and mercy. So he's in that group. Um, but then this guy named Nabonidus, who married into the family, possibly marries the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. No one's quite sure. Nabonidus comes in, he assassinates the king, takes over rule, and he's the guy in charge right now. But he's not here because there was this religious political battle that Nabonidus got into. So if you know Babylon, their main God was this guy named, this God named Marduk. That's who they worshiped. 
Well, Nabonidus decided, I'm not worshiping Marduk anymore. I'm gonna worship the god Sin. Now beware when you worship the god named Sin. It just doesn't sound like a good idea, right? So he worships this god named Sin, causes this fraction. Nobody knows quite what happened. Was it a war or was it that allegiance to a different God that causes him to withdraw from Babylon, leave there and kind of turn the whole thing over to Belshazzar, his son, while he's out worshiping the God sin, doing whatever he's gonna do. So Belshazzar takes over. He's a bum. He's not a good dude. Uh, There's a story recounted about him out on this hunting trip where this young man makes him angry and he just kills him on the spot. So he's just not a good dude. He's a bad guy. It's bad things, and his time is up in chapter five. So this event takes place in 539 BC, October 11th, plus or minus an hour. That's really the date that they set for this. So here's what happens. Verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. So they're partying. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So this is the setup. They are partying like it's 1999, BC, of course. And what we know is this, there was the Medo-Persian army camped all around Babylon right at this point. And they had, the Medo-Persians had defeated most of the known world at this time. So they had just marched across the entire known world and now they had finally congregated on the last outpost which is Babylon. So massive army outside wants to extinguish Babylon. And what is Belshazzar doing? Partying. Isn't that a little crazy? Why would he be doing that? Here's why. History tells us that the walls around Babylon were massive, 65 feet to 85 feet tall. And there was a dual set of them one wall and then another wall. And you could, it was 36 feet in between. You could run a chariot, a series of chariots around the whole wall. So just this massive wall set. On top of that, they had 253 of these towers that they could look down on the army and drop like hot oil, start on fire, uh, burn them up, drop down stones on them. They had a moat, they had diverted the Euphrates River and it went around the entire city. So you had to get over a moat before you could even try to get into the walls. So bringing over it like siege equipment, very hard to bring it through a moat. So unbelievable. 
They had enough food stored in that city to last for 20 years. They had a fresh water supply because they had also diverted part of the Euphrates, Euphrates River. It ran underneath the city and watered these hanging gardens. Like it was just impregnable, right? So here's what they thought. Babylon will never fall. We're never gonna fall. Beware when you say never, right? The Titanic was never going to sink. It sunk. The other thing is this. Most armies would fight their war. There's literally a season of war. You'd fight from the spring until the fall. Because once it got muddy and nasty, your troops started getting sick and diseased. It was really bad. So when it got cold, you would essentially pack up, go home, and then come back and start over the next spring. So they're thinking it's October. We made it. We survived. Let's party. So they're partying hard, going for it. So Belshazzar in this overconfident, we've made it, it's October, we're through it. Yeah, he starts partying. And then he says, bring out the vessels. Now, why? Why does he decide to choose the vessels that had come from the house of Yahweh back in Jerusalem? Why would he care about those? Well, as we read this chapter, here's what we'll find out. He knew about his, it's probably his grandpa. He knew about his grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar. He would have been alive at the time that Nebuchadnezzar was alive. He would have interactions with his grandpa. And no doubt, Grandpa Nebi would have told him what had happened to him, his testimony of chapter four. We studied that last week. Man, God humbled me. I was like a wild animal for seven years. And then when I finally reached up and looked and begged for forgiveness from God, he cleansed me and put me on my right feet again. Oh, he would have have known this story. And for some reason, Belshazzar decided, I want nothing to do with that God. In fact, I wanna blaspheme that God. Bring those vessels in. Let's party out of those sacred vessels. Why is it? that some of the most ardent haters of God, of Christianity, are those that were most familiar with it. Have you noticed that? So um, Richard Dawkins grew up in the church, if you know his story. And now he is the high priest of atheism, just raging, right? The God delusion. And, and anyone that believes in God is a dim, while we atheists are brights. But there's another one. His name is Bart Ehrman. Has anyone heard of him? Okay, so um, you read his testimony. I've watched a lot on him and had to study him in seminary. Um, But fundamentalist Christian, you know, going for it, love, went to Moody Bible Institute, got a degree there, went to Wheaton after that, got a bachelor's, um, went on from there. Uh, But but he now, 100% atheist. Not just, hey, I'm an atheist and I don't really care about things. He's the guy that's like, he wants to tear down people's faith especially in scripture. So if you know him, he'll say this, or if you've read about him, I don't recommend reading about him, but he says this, there are are over 200,000 mistakes in the Bible, which if you just do the math on that for a second, there are 31,000 verses. That would mean every verse has at least seven mistakes in them. Okay, you're just got nutty there, but he keeps repeating this. You know what? He knows it's not true. 
He knows it's not true. Because if you know the Bible, it is 99.5% pure. Meaning if you go back to the original documents and you look at them and, and, and changes that happen, scribal errors, whatever it is, it's 99.5%. That is the known fact. There are two, 20,000 lines of scripture, essentially. That's how they boil it down. Only 40 of them have a question mark on them. And not a single one of the 40 that have a question mark on them have anything to do with a vital doctrine that we believe in. But here's what he's done. So there are these families of texts. So let's say some guy in the second century has the epistle to the Romans and he is copying it out. And he's, as he's copying it out, writing it out, he changes one of the letters, makes a mistake, right? Rolls it up, doesn't know about it. And then that scroll then is passed on to somebody else who then they copy it over. Gets, it becomes a family then that's based on that one. Does that make sense? All the subsequent manuscripts are copied from that one. So let's say there's a thousand manuscripts that are made off that one down the line over the next 500, 600 years or till whenever, the printing press for the next thousand years, right? So all of them have in that, that same mistake. He would say, there's a thousand mistakes right there. No, there's not. There's one mistake that was repeated a thousand times, but he loves to say things like that because then it puts in a question mark in people's mind about, oh, well, scripture doesn't have authority. Scripture must be wrong, even though he knows what he's doing. Why is it the most ardent haters were once believers? It's an interesting question. And I think it all boils down to, I don't have time for this, but it's, it's the hiddenness of God, that at some point they got mad that God didn't do what they wanted him to do. When I have talked with people that really hate Christianity, that know a lot about it, if you'll just pick away at them for a little while, eventually you'll come to a story or an event where they're like, I expected God to come through for me like this and he didn't. Well, he's God and you're not. And Psalm 115 says God is in heaven and he does what he wants. And our job is to say, okay, God, I trust that you know what's best, right? But typically they don't. So here you have this guy blaspheming God, right? Insulting him to his face. I'm gonna drink from these, whatever, golden vessels to prove who I am, that I'm the power guy. Like even today, why do we use Jesus's name in vain and not some other God? Why don't we use the Hindu gods? Like, oh, Krishna or oh, Ganesh or oh, Marduk. Why don't we do that? It's interesting to me. So here it is, the one true God being blasphemed. But here's what I love. Here's what I love. Here's the hope. God's up to these challenges. God's up to these challenges and that's what we're gonna find out. Keep reading verse five. Let me make one more point on this. And this is, I'm gonna say this. This is a side sermon. And I should probably have a warning before it and like music or something to say, this is completely off track. But it's interesting that it, it, twice it says this, that he was drinking with his wives and his concubines. What was a concubine? It was a woman who was there strictly for the pleasure of the man. That's it. She had no right to offspring. She had no right to an inheritance. She had no right at all. She was a woman that was purely there for the pleasure of that man. 
So back in the 80s, I was a little kid. There's a commercial that still sticks with me. And it's this guy, he's running. And I've mentioned it before. And he's sweating. And there is this gray shirt he has on. And a little boy's voice comes on and says, when I grow up, I want to be an Olympic runner. And while that's going on, the camera's panning back from this guy who's just, he's giving it his all. So you kind of are like, oh, he must be running in the Olympics. And then out of the side of the, the camera comes a hand with a blue shirt on, grabs him, tackles him. And then the camera pans back and it's a policeman cuffing this man. And then a big person's voice comes in and says, no little boy dreams of growing up to be a drug addict. Say no to drugs. You're like, oh, okay. I have a new one based on that. No little girl dreams of growing up to be a concubine. They all dream of growing up to be a queen. And I think we have to do a really good job of our girls and telling them over and over and over again, don't let a boy use you. Don't be his concubine. If a boy says, hey, I wanna move in with you and doesn't want to marry you, He's treating you like a concubine and not like a queen. And concubines rarely become queens. Don't let them treat you like that. You are the Imago Dei. You are valued and loved. You are a queen of King Jesus. Don't let them treat you like that, period. You're a queen, not a concubine. That's what I think. Side sermon over, music plays, back to the point. (laughs) Verse number five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. I just love how that said. His limbs gave way. That is probably a polite way of saying he needed to be wearing a Depends. (laughs) And his knees knocked together. The king called loudly. He's screaming, literally. He's screaming to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? His dad's number one, Nabonidus number one. He's number two. Third is the only one, only option. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed again. And his lords were perplexed. He did not need to read to know what was going on. He had enough history from his grandpa to know, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I just meddled in something that I should not have meddled in. And I love this. This event happens, this puzzling event, this crazy event happens, and all the experts are called in, right? Verse seven, bring them all in. Bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the wise men. 
It's the same thing that happens today. Like something perplexing happens and CNN brings in all the experts, right? Fox News brings in all the experts and, and MSNBC brings in all the experts and the New York Times bring in all the experts, the enchanters and the psychologists and the sociologists. Please tell us what's happening. What I found is this. They don't seem to have the answer. Very infrequently do they seem to ha- have the answer. These guys must be tenured because they never have the answer, Right? <laughs> They never, like we've seen over and over, they're called in. I don't have a clue, man. I'm gonna go back to my ivory tower and study for a while. Yeah, do that. So there's this great story about Becky Pippert. If you haven't read her, she's, she's got some brilliant stuff. But um, she's a great evangelist, great writer. She writes about being in college and she's taking a psychology class. And it's at Harvard And the professor was talking about a case study about this man who had been hurt by his mother, carried unforgiveness and bitterness toward his mother. And then um, that bitterness just began to poison him. Lost his marriage, uh, lost his kids, lost his family, lost his job, kind of lost his mind. And he just kind of goes through it clinically. And he's like, yeah, okay, there's the study. And so the class is like a little perplexed. Like she raised her hand. She goes, well, well, can't we help him? And the professor's like, what do you mean help him? No, this is science. Science talks about what is, not what ought to be. If you wanna talk about helping him, you need to go to a different department. And all the students were like, what are you talking about? You can help him. Teach him about forgiveness. Teach him like every mom hurts their kids. That's just the nature of it. Like we, there's no perfect mom, right? They don't exist. Are you kidding me? And the professor kept saying, no. Science doesn't do that. You got the wrong department. We don't do that. And he just held his ground on this. I thought that was so fascinating. When it comes to the big answers <clears throat> that most of us want, the experts don't have it. If you don't believe me, tomorrow go to RCC and go to the front desk and say, I'd like the Department of Reality. <laughs> get that here? Hmm. Okay, well, I'd like to take a class on um, my purpose. Yeah, we don't have one of those classes. Okay, then, then how about the class on why are we here? Yeah, I don't have that one either. Like the really huge, pressing, important questions, science doesn't answer them. These enchanters, these guys, they don't have the answer. So in comes this wise queen, verse 10. So news has spread probably. Something just happened in the party. Everyone's freaking out. Hands showed up. Wrote on the wall, it's crazy. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. He must have looked really bad. She's like, oh my goodness, dude, you are white. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems was found in this Daniel whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called 
and he will show this interpretation. Most likely, the word father here can always mean grandfather or great-grandfather. So most likely, Nebuchadnezzar is his great-grandfather. This queen could be the queen mother, meaning she's Belshazzar's grandma. No one's exactly sure. So anyway, she is this wise, incredible woman who guides the right answer. I love women like this. We need tons of women like this. And she says, the guy you want, this guy named Daniel, this guy named Belteshazzar. So again, we see in the book of Daniel, he is called up. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't demand that people listen to him. He is called up. They seek him out. They say, you gotta come in here. Now, why is he in such demand? Read verse 12. Excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding. Explain riddles, solve problems. My goodness, give me a thousand, give me one dude that can solve problems, over a thousand that can't. A lot of people just cause problems. You're like, oh my goodness. Give me one dude that can solve problems. You're like, dude, you are a problem solver. Thank you. Why? Because he's got this excellent spirit. He's got knowledge. He's got understanding to interpret dreams. He can solve problems. Let him be brought in. I think many times the best defense of the good news is real simple. It's you live it. Daniel's been living it, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, now chapter five. He lives it. Doesn't talk about it, doesn't force his way in. His life demonstrates it. And you have almost juxtaposed to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, you've got King Nebuchadnezzar who's got a temper problem, who wants to make people into body parts and their houses into landfills, who's wanting to burn people in furnaces, who's prideful, Belshazzar, who's a blasphemous partier. And then on the other side of this, you've got these kind, calm, respectful, resolved people. It's like they're just contrasted. And when things get crazy, when things get bad, when things are out of control, hey, you guys come in here now because we know what you are because you've lived it time and time and time again. Do we live lives that other people would want? If someone was to evaluate your life, would they be like, man, I'd like to live that life. That's the best news in the world. That's the best witness you can ever have. Like, oh my goodness, you have an excellent spirit. You're a problem solver. You've got this, the, the spirit of God in you. I want that. Do we live lives of sacrifice and love and truthfulness? Because if you do, there will come a time for those that are around you that they get into a puzzle in their marriage, in their job, depression, whatever it is. And that's when they'll say, bro, help me. You've lived a different kind of life. Hey, sweetie, help me. That's what we, kind of, that's what we want. That's why Daniel keeps getting called in. If you live it, people will ask you to tell it. It happens over and over and over. Live it like Daniel. So he comes in, verse 13. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, 
You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Notice how much he knows about him. Whom my king, whom the king, my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Notice the similarity in these two guys' names, right? Belshazzar is the king. Daniel's Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. They're almost identical. Notice the name that Belshazzar uses to refer to Daniel. It's not Belteshazzar. I wonder if the similarity of them kind of made him freak out. Like almost like, uh uh-oh, I know this guy. He's super wise. He's super powerful. He's been around for a long time. And I don't even want to use that name for him. Right? Instead, he uses the name Daniel. What does Daniel mean? Does anybody remember? God is my judge. So here he is. How ironic is that? God is my judge, because guess what? That's exactly what's happening right now. God is my judge. Hey, Daniel, hey, God is my, every time he's saying it, God is my judge. And that's exactly what's happening to him. So, so awesome. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I'm good, man. I don't need any of your junk. Keep it. Because I'm going to tell you something. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But before he does that, he's got a message built up probably over some period of time where he's like, ooh, I'm gonna tell that Belshazzar. And so here's a chance. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was spread He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Daniel knows 
You knew your grandpa. You knew everything that happened and you've ignored it. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you. You and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He's got a sermon for him. Before I tell you the riddle, I'm gonna preach. He's 80 years old. Yeah, laugh. He's got nothing, there it is. What do I have to lose, man? Take my head off, I don't care. I'm gonna tell you the truth. I love 80 year olds that tell it like it is. It doesn't matter anymore. What do I got to lose? Are you kidding me? I'm gonna tell you like it is. And that's what he does right in front of this king with a thousand people the leaders of Babylon at that point, listening. How brilliant is that? In verse 19, he says this. Nebuchadnezzar, your father, really your grandfather, same idea. He killed whom he would and he let live whom he would. You read that and you're like, man, that dude was ruthless. We've come so far since then. Really? Now we just vote in who we decide who should live or should, should not die, should not live. Now it's a vote that does it. And we decide, you know what? That individual doesn't deserve to live. They're a burden on society. They're too difficult. So we're just gonna kill them. We haven't gone any further than Babylon. We're the same exact kind of empire. The ones that we think should live, we deem, oh, they're worthy, let them be born. Oh, those are not worthy, they will not be born. We have not changed one bit. Humans have not changed. So he says this, you should have known. Your grandpa went through all this. He told you it so that you wouldn't go through the same thing. So you can learn from his mistakes, learn from his pride, learn from his stupidity and live a different kind of life. But you didn't. And you know all this, it's why you're freaking out so bad. And then verse 23, I love it. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. He's essentially saying this, you are no Nebuchadnezzar. Remember 1988, Dan Quayle? Was it Lloyd Benson? The vice presidential debate, they go back and forth and Dan Quayle, this young dude was like, well, you know, Jack Kennedy, he said something about Jack Kennedy and Lloyd Benson had that classic comeback. Senator, you are no Jack Kennedy. <laughs> That's what's being said right now to Belshazzar. You are no Nebuchadnezzar. You're not at all like him because you've got pride and you will not Humble yourself. How huge is pride? How many sins hang their hook on pride? Someone's pride gets hurt. 100 years ago, it was a duel, right? Let's go out. Someone's dying today. You hurt my pride. 
right? Pride is the root of so many sins. People that are, have a superiority complex. Where's that from? Pride. Somebody that's always like worrying about the way their life should be. Right? It's pride because in, in their own pride, they think my life should look like this and it doesn't. People that are really, really bitter because somebody did something to them. It's a pride that says, oh, I would never do that. Oh, come on, yes, you would. Humble yourself, yes, you would. People that are full of pride, they often feel guilt. You know why? Because they can't accept God's grace and forgiveness. They wanna earn it, they wanna deserve it. Their own pride in themselves says, no, I can't get that from God. I've gotta go do it myself. That's pride. And you get full of guilt. That's what you get. Go on and on, war, racism nationalism, tribalism, all of them hang their hooks on pride. It's why God is like over and over and over. Humble yourself. Jesus says, Matthew 23, 12, he says to the Pharisees, a group of people that needed it, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those that humble themselves will be exalted. Real simple. Don't be like Belteshazzar. Or excuse me, don't, like, don't be like Belshazzar. So in the end, verse 24, then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many tekel and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. He's like, thanks for the next five hours. Awesome, right? <laughs> this is silly. <laughs> What's so funny to me is this, like, dude, do something, Rally the troops, right? Get something going. He doesn't. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So history, you probably know this. The Medo-Persians went up the river. They dammed it. Once they had dammed it, the freshwater supply that ran underneath the city allowed them to duck underneath the walls and walk under the walls. And then they popped up inside the city. Everyone's drunk and doing their thing. And they took it bloodlessly without shooting an arrow. The man that told them to do this and led them in was a Babylonian deserter who legend says was the father of the young man that Belshazzar killed in the, hunting acts, in the hunting trip. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. So that happens. They come in. Um, the people that saw them coming in welcomed them because of how bad Belshazzar was. Please free us from this guy. He's a bad dude. Thank you for coming in. All the leaders of Babylon are in this room together. They're like, hey, jackpot. Here they all are. Okay, brilliant, right? I mean, it's just like divine, and it was. So um, 
The city is so big and so vast that it took a month for the news to get out. Like what? Oh, I'm a Persian now? Cool, right on, I'm a Persian. (laughs) So funny. Two things and we'll be done. Belshazzar is told by God, you've been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. You're lightweight, man. The way you've lived your life, your priorities, whatever it is, you are lightweight. You knew better. Your grandpa told you this stuff. He lived it. He had the scars to prove it. You knew it, but you didn't live that way. You're lightweight. And now it's time, time to pay. You gotta be really careful. A prayer that I have from this is, God, give me your scales. When I go about my life, when I go about my day, when I go about my plan, give me your scales. Because I can be so wrong in my own scales. I can think, oh, this is really super important. And God's like, no, it's not. Right, the Pharisees got this, Matthew 23. Jesus says, you guys count out your spice. Right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one grain for God. One, two, three, four, right? Like, are you kidding me? And Jesus says, you strain at gnats, but you swallow camels. And you neglect the weightier things of the law, which are mercy. That's what you're neglecting. Your scale's all wrong. Man, I've had talk, I had a talk with a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago back here after the 11 o'clock service. They cornered me for like 20 minutes. And it was, King James is the only version of the Bible. How can we read another version? I'm like, oh, really? Like at first I thought they're like, they're like, hey, can we meet with you? I'm like, well, maybe, I don't know. And I'm like, you're KJ only people. No, we're not meeting. Uh-uh. They're like, really? Nope, we're not meeting. And then that was enough. So I kind of showed like, hey, here's why I believe what I believe. And I showed them some things in their King James version. And then they're like, well, use leaven in communion. I went, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Really? We're gonna do this. You're straining at gnats and you're swallowing camels. Like if you really love Jesus, go out and save people. Go out and help a homeless person. Take a foster care kid into your home. Don't sit here in a church and try to convince people of your pet doctrine. It's Pharisees. God, give me your scales. It's been a prayer of my heart. The more and more I meditate on chapter five, because I can be just like a Pharisee. I can count out my little things and be on the wrong thing. Matt, what are you doing with all your time, man? Why are you doing that? Do things that matter. Use my scales. And then number two, you have this finger of God coming out writing, the writing on the wall. I believe Jesus references this in Luke chapter 11. So he casts a demon out of this mute boy. And the Pharisees did not believe that was possible. They thought you had to name a demon. You had to get a demon to name itself before you could cast it out. So they're like, oh, the only way he cast out that demon was by the power of Satan, Beelzebub. And so Jesus says, hold on a second, time out, let's talk. He goes, listen to me. If I cast out this demon by the finger of God, know this, the kingdom is here right now. I love that. The one time I think Jesus references this story, the handwriting on the wall, what's happening, what's coming down the pike, what's, he says this, the way you're gonna know the kingdom is here, it's not with 
writing on the wall. It's by changed lives. People that were demonic and crazy and out of control, all of a sudden being set free and becoming loving, tolerant, kind, incredible human beings. That's how you're gonna know the kingdom's here. So Paul would, I think, pick up on that same idea and he'd say this, you guys are living epistles. You're living epistles. You're the kingdom, you're the writing, you're it right now. Are we living lives that look like the kingdom? Are we living epistles? Would people say about my life, about the way I live, would they say, I see the kingdom in your life? I certainly hope so. Because that's the way it's supposed to be. It's why Daniel was over and over picked up and brought out because his life was written out every day in excellence. God's spirit, knowledge, beauty, incredibleness. May our lives be living epistles. May the way that we live tomorrow, at jobs we go to, in neighborhoods we live in, in the way that we work with people, in how we drive our cars, in all that, may they be living epistles, showing the very handiwork of God, writing his will, his way on the tablets of our heart, which is the new covenant. So Jesus, help us in that. The only Bible most people in Southern Oregon are going to read is our lives. We read about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and it was the way that they lived and opened doors for them so that then they could preach and proclaim you as the only true God. May our lives be proclaiming the good news because of the way that we live and may it open doors for us to proclaim the good news that you were born, lived, died for us rose again, sent your spirit, are building the kingdom and you're going to return for us and finish it with us. So we know that we need your spirit to do that. Just like it was said of Daniel, that the spirit of God was in him. We need your spirit in us. So may we be vessels fit for your glory, fit for the outpouring of your spirit to live lives of love and sacrifice and kindness and turning the other cheek, live those kind of lives. And may it open doors for you to save souls. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.